Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. In his book, Mind and Nature, Gregory Bateson tells a joke about a man who wants to know whether computers will ever think like human beings. He puts the question to his computer. The computer laboriously reviews its programs and then finally prints out its answer. That reminds me of a story, the computer begins. Bateson's little joke cuts several ways, but one of its points is that a lot of what we call thinking is structured as stories. The things that we learn and retain are often those things that fit most easily into the stories we tell about ourselves and into the master narratives of our culture. This aspect of thinking has generally been excluded from academic psychology, which has concentrated on modeling logical and instrumental thought processes. But tonight, you'll meet three psychologists who argue that our thinking is directed above all by a search for coherence and meaning, a search which they think virtually defines us as cultural beings. The program is part two of a four-part series called Modes of Thought by David Cayley. The series is based on a symposium held at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education in September of 1993. David Cayley. In 1962, as a young freshman at Harvard, I enrolled myself in a course which promised to introduce me to the science of psychology. I've never forgotten the first class. A distinguished professor explained to us the theory of cognitive dissonance. Let's say, he explained, that you smoke, but you've been told that smoking is bad for you. The ideas are dissonant. Therefore, he said, you will tend to alter your belief to bring it in line with your practice. I listened to his lecture in some dismay. It seemed to me that all the grandly named theory of cognitive dissonance was actually saying was what everybody in that room already knew. People tend to rationalize. The rest of the course confirmed what this first experience had hinted at. Applying science to human beings, it then seemed to me, produced, at best, commonplaces like the theory of cognitive dissonance, and at worst, a monstrously reduced idea of what people actually are. I retreated to the humanities. Only years later, when I read Jerome Brunner's autobiography, In Search of Mind, did I discover what my brief snapshot of psychology at Harvard could not have shown me, that at the time, the psychology department was in the throes of what came to be called the cognitive revolution. American psychology, well into the 50s, had been dominated by behaviorism, which had attempted to explain what people do without reference to their intentions or the meaning they ascribe to their actions. The cognitive revolution, in the simplest terms, was the introduction of mind into psychology. Dissonance theory, seen in this light, was at least an acknowledgement that what people think they're doing is part of psychology. Jerome Bruner put himself at the center of this revolution with the publication of his first book, A Study of Thinking, in 1956. He has continued to enlarge the boundaries of psychology ever since. His 1990 book, Acts of Meaning, for example, proposes what he calls a culturally-oriented psychology, a psychology which recognizes that people cannot be sensibly studied apart from their culture, because culture is the medium in which their lives make sense. But while he has gone ahead, Brunner believes, 
a lot of other cognitive psychologists have been sidetracked. The cognitive revolution, in his opinion, has been hijacked by the computer revolution. The model of thought as computation has become dominant in psychology. And old behaviorist ideas like reinforcement, which he and his colleagues pushed out the front door a generation ago, have returned through the back door in the form of shiny new cybernetic concepts like feedback. Much of psychology, Bruner says, has reverted to its roots. There is the need somehow to keep psychology in some sort of a model that fits the pattern of science. And the pattern of science is essentially to find a set of formulae that have unique solutions to them, which do not tolerate having alternative interpretations. We want to explain. And um, the cognitive revolution, when it moved over and took the model of the computer and computational theory for its standard, wanted to go back again into the domain of unique solutions, which sort of ruled interpretation out because computational theory can only deal with well-formed problems. A well-formed problem, you remember, is one that has one and only one answer. But there are at least several things that make it impossible to have this as the on one and only model. And it may very well be that it's useful for some things, and we know perfectly well that it's proved to be useful for some things. One of the difficulties that it has is that the computational model deals with information processing, how information is moved around in a system. Well, information in the system already has been assigned meanings. It's been given an address. It's been put in a certain place, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, the prior question is, how did it get stuck in that address? How did, I mean, how, how, how did it come to mean that? So I'd, I felt that we had to somehow recapture what the original impulse was behind the cognitive revolution, was to, which was to get us away from the kind of deterministic denial of consciousness, denial of subjective intentional states. And I felt that um, they would just get us back into a kind of more highbrow version of the same old behaviorism, which in some curious way they have. In the face of this reversion to behaviorism, Jerome Bruner has continued to argue that psychology must be about meaning and its interpretation. In a 1986 book called Actual Minds, Possible Worlds, he introduced an influential distinction between what he called narrative and paradigmatic modes of thought. By paradigmatic thought, he meant the analytical and deductive modes in which cognitive psychology was already interested. What he wanted to draw attention to was the narrative mode, which he felt psychology had largely overlooked. Around this time, for example, he was associated with a study in which a little girl called Emily was recorded as she talked to herself alone in her crib just before she went to sleep. The study was published in 1989 by Catherine Nelson under the title Narratives from the Crib. What Emily was doing in her soliloquies, Brunner thought, was trying to make sense of her experience. This involved assessing the intentions of the people with whom she was involved and fitting them into a coherent narrative. Narrative, in Bruner's definition, involves intentional action, a sequence of events, a sense of what is expected, and a point of view, in this case, Emily's. The push to construct narrative, Bruner believes, is what drives language learning. 
Emily's leaps forward in speech and the order in which she mastered grammatical forms both seem to him to be governed by this push. And what is true of Emily, he thinks, is true of the rest of us. The mind is not built mechanically out of the bits and pieces of cognition. It's structured holistically by its need for narrative coherence. What people think they're doing and say they're doing matters. To try to separate what people say and what they do is, in Bruner's own words, bad philosophy, bad anthropology, bad psychology, and impossible law. And psychology, he says, has lagged far behind other disciplines in recognizing that this is the case. The people today who are calling, this is a funny irony, who are calling for a cognitive psychology are treated by the, the priests of the Temple of Cognitive Science as radicals and, and uh, dissidents and the rest of it. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, in every other discipline, we have always operated on the assumption that that's an important matter. I mean, history is a good case in point. Ranka, for example, in transforming historical studies, makes the point that you don't fully understand what an historical period is about until you know what the protagonists within the historical period were thinking was the nature of the situation in which they found themselves. Anthropologists have argued that you have to become emic rather than etic. Emic is the culture and its distinctions as seen by the people who are participating in it rather than by the visiting anthropologists from St. Paul, Minnesota. You know, uh, uh, the bungo bungoese see it in a certain way and that's going to determine how they behave. And never mind, the, the, the people from St. Paul, Minnesota can give their interpretations after the fact. And that's also interesting because to some extent, anthropology is a conversation between cultures. And if we had the proper courtesy, I guess we would get the bongo bongoese to come back now and visit St. Paul, Minnesota, and give us an account of it. Well, it's uh, it's happening. It is happening, <laughs> and and it's 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 great. It's great. So long as nobody says we will now have a civil war in which we want to determine which of them is right. Deciding which of them is right implies stripping away interpretation in order to determine the real state of affairs, which is precisely what Brunner believes to be impossible. People, in his view, have no access to an aboriginal, uninterpreted reality. We encounter the world only as a set of effective interpretations. Economics, he says, is a case in point. The interpretation that you put on certain economic phenomena have an enormous effect on the way the economy works. And if you adopt a given interpretation, the Federal Reserve Board, if it adopted that one, or the World Bank, as the case may be, will start behaving in a fashion in accordance with it. There's a looping effect. We start to begin constituting a kind of reality. Before we know whether a theory of economics is right, the consequences are felt in applying that theory of economics in terms of real power operations. Now, somebody says, well, what's the status of those? In what sense are they real? Well, they're real in terms of the fact that they change the indications that people have of what it's like. That is to say, when they go to their bank, the banker says, well, yeah, sure, you can have a loan. That'll be 10% compounded annually. And that's real in the sense that it's money out of your pocket. The world isn't just a set of illusions. I mean, there are a set of constraints in it. But the way in which we place interpretations on things are part of the reality of the world. It's not just some little set of decorations, the, the, the real story is X, 
and your story is illusion. If, for example, the British government issues monthly statements on money supply in the form of M1, M2, M3, and the stock exchanges of the world bounce like rubber balls every time the M1, M2, M3 thing comes out. And so when you say, when I want to tell you about the reality of M1, M2, M3, are they real figures or are they real concepts? The realness of the concept is what people do on the basis of them. Uh, to pronounce that it, is, it has a reality that we can give it to you in terms of the bookkeeping that they do at the Bank of England or that the Cambridge economists have it right or something, all of that's fine, but those things have no special reality of their own. I mean, they don't get any special, if I can put it that way, ontological status as in reality. The ontological status is essentially a pragmatic status. Reality, in Jerome Bruner's view, has no foundational level. The point can be illustrated by a story told by the anthropologist Clifford Geertz, a thinker with whom Bruner has a lot in common. An English anthropologist, in Geertz's tale, is querying an Indian about his cosmology. The Hindu tells him that the world rests on the back of an elephant. Yes, says the anthropologist, but what's the elephant resting on? A turtle, says his informant. And the turtle, replies the visitor. Ah, Sahib, says the Hindu. After that, it's turtles all the way down. Recognizing that the world is turtles all the way down leads Jerome Brunner to adopt a pragmatic criterion of truth. What is true is what has proved itself in practice, a precept he thinks is illustrated by the workings of the law. What's the reality of law? Well, again, the reality of law is a function of how well the legal system can produce enforcement. If it has to use um, force all the time, it's a lousy system of law. If its authority can prevail, and if people say, I see, to use the, the, the classic concept from English common law, not only is justice done, but justice seems to be done or appears to be done, these are the important kinds of realities. Now, if one calls that relativism, then the opposite is kind of a mad utopianism. So a, 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 a utopianism is the thing that has produced more cruelty, more suffering, more killing than the kind of pragmatic common sense thing which says, in effect, people have to live together. Relativism, Jerome Brunner says in his book Acts of Meaning, is a bogey conjured up by those who believe that morality must be founded on philosophical or theological bedrock, otherwise anything goes. He argues that a pragmatic standard does make moral demands, though not necessarily the same demands as an absolute standard. It focuses, for example, more on the consequences of our beliefs than on their justification. But this need not imply that our commitments are arbitrary. Bruner is a senior research fellow in law, as well as a professor of psychology, and he again illustrates with an example from the law. In the law, in order to guarantee that there be a decent uh, pragmatic criterion for these things, you insist on a couple of interesting principles. That is to say, when there is a decision, we insist in Anglo-American law that it follow the rule of stare decisis, that is to say, that it relates to decisions that have been made in the past and is non-discontinuous, therefore not arbitrary. 
This takes the view that human life is lived in some continuity and that there is a decency to commitment. Now, I know that that's, uh, somebody could have a different view of life of that and they would, they would really have chaos. That's one principle. And so every justice of the Canadian courts or of the American Supreme Court or the High Court in Britain, when they come forth with a ruling or a finding of some court, make every effort to cite precedent. Now, precedent requires interpretation so that one, what, what one also does is to do with what Mr. Justice Holmes, I think, once re referred to as give a reasoned judicial basis for the particular interpretation that you gave, which means basically putting together in some explicit form, if you can, the line of reasoning that went into it and putting it in such a form that it can be explicit, which means that there can be a basis for negotiating. Interpretation in law must be open to challenge. It must clearly reveal the precedents, principles, and presuppositions on which it's based. This is how it becomes what Jerome Bruner calls a basis for negotiating. A culturally oriented psychology, in his view, ought to do something similar by revealing the narrative patterns within which meaning is constructed. This can then become the basis for negotiating in situations in which different cultures mix and overlap. You have got somehow to keep the society going. The fact of the matter is that what locks us together is that if we both lose, or if one of us loses and the other one wins and wins in such a way that the society collapses so you get no reward at all, it doesn't work. You see, I, I am thoroughgoingly a pragmatist. Wittgenstein once made the remark that the role of the philosopher was to help the fly out of the bottle. Well, that's the role of the cultural psychologist, too, is to help the fly out of the bottle, and the bottle tends to be, you know, a very, very conflicted one with a lot of boiling water on one side, and not, it's not quite clear whether it's one bottle or two, and so forth. So I want to argue that the only way in which we can keep ourselves from coming under the control of the managers who believe that everything can be put into a sort of propositional form and deduced is somehow to bear in mind what it is that a cultural psychology is like, that, that somehow the novelists and the interpreters have a role. Because the fact of the matter is that they set forth a vision of possible worlds, possible values, possible ways of having intersubjectivity with each other. And so if we as psychologists don't take that into account, we become sterile and trivial. And I have no intention to stand by and let that happen. <laughs> Cultural psychology, according to Jerome Bruner, ought to show how meaning is made within a culture. It ought to explore the narrative frameworks which give experience a coherent structure, and it ought to study how it is that we make sense of these narratives in the first place. But how, in practical terms, is this study to be done? This is one of the questions that has interested Carol Feldman, a colleague of Jerome Bruner's, they are also married, and a research psychologist at New York University. 
Her background as a cognitive psychologist is in the philosophy of language. And through her collaboration with Bruner, she took up a subject he had written about, the claim that language acquires meaning within a cultural context. I became interested in the question of how a person could give that some empirical expression, that claim. What, would, what did it mean to say that language had its effects, did its work by existing inside a, a system of culturally organized meanings? What does that even mean to begin with? Well, that's a theoretical claim, to be sure, that says, in a way, that if you try to make sense of any of the language expressions in art or in life by pulling them out of the framework of the historical literature and art forms and, uh, and, and even remembered utterances of great presidents and so on, that they won't have their penumbra of sense around them that gives them the meaning the acculturated adult assigns to them. But I wanted to give this idea a more concrete empirical representation for psychology, and this for another reason. Here's the other reason. I am a dedicated cognitive psychologist in the sense that I'm very interested in how people think. And cognitive psychology has specialized to a terrible extreme degree in the forms of thought that might be called mathematical. It gives the impression, when you look at the body of research in cognitive psychology, that all forms of thought are mathematical. So I wanted to try to sketch, then, what a cognition of interpretation would look like, a cognition of, of understanding as opposed to explanation, a cognition of, of construal as opposed to computation. And I wanted to try to make a case that there were patterns. This wasn't just some idiosyncratic thing. In other words, people don't just go to a play and just feel whatever they feel and think whatever they think, and that's that, but rather that as part of the expertise of adults situated in the culture, we have a knowledge base about patterns of construal that enable us to see beyond the text and understand things about the characters, the author, the action, and the fate of man expressed in any kind of a narrative product. So that the, the expectation of meaning and the capacity to discern it are somehow part of us are part of our from the beginning. The expectation of meaning comes in the very beginning of life, and the skill to discern it develops steadily. We still see growth in the studies we do between 25 and 35 years of age. It's one of the most essential and fundamental and important pieces of knowledge that people have, is how to interpret narrations. How did you go about trying to model interpretive cognition? We used some standard experimental methods with little changes. We used stories for our stimuli. That's unusual, but not unique in psychology. We read them to subjects. And instead of asking them to tell us what was in them or remember them, which would have been more normal in psychology, we asked them what was important about them, why it was important, what was going to happen next, why they thought that was going to happen, what the author was trying to do, what kind of a story it was, and we asked them to retell the story. And then we treat everything they tell us as a text in its own right. 
and we analyze it to see what is the pattern of construal subjects place on the text. Now, to make this genuinely psychological research, we did it as experiments. So we would read people, for example, a text, the same text, and we would tell one group of subjects it was an autobiography, and another group we would tell it was a piece of fiction. And then we would take the texts of the subjects who were given this experimental treatment and look at the pattern of talk in all the subjects we told it was an autobiography, what they had in common in their pattern, and the pattern of talk in all the subjects we told it was fiction, what did they have in common. And we did indeed find patterns. These patterns, we say, are part of the knowledge of the adults situated in the culture. They are genre-like patterns. They are the knowledge of what is the way an autobiography is put together and the knowledge of what is the way a piece of fiction is put together that gives a base that guides interpretation, that lets them interpret in a way that's intelligent, informed, organized, and not just a random feeling exercise. I only mention this because I think, from an educational point of view, it's such a shame that we don't see how important and how formalized this kind of knowledge eventually is in enculturated adults that we don't teach it at all in schools. We expect kids to pick that up by themselves. And so what happens, sadly, is that we very much emphasize the capacity to do the logical aspects of thinking, but we don't sophisticate and hone the skills of, of school children to do the interpretive aspects of thinking. If they're in a culturally enriched environment with their friends or their parents or other aspects of the community outside of school, they will get the exposure that will teach them to be sophisticated interpreters of both ordinary discourse and the artifacts of narrative life. But if they don't happen to run into that willy-nilly, the schools are not likely to give it to them, with exceptions, of course. We know there are special humanities schools where students are fortunate to be able to read a great many texts and have teachers help them understand how to think of them in a patterned way. It interested me in uh, Jerry Bruner's book, Acts of Meaning, that he speaks of uh, a situation of social degradation in terms of, I think he says, impoverishment of narrative resources. Mm -hmm. I, I guess that's what you're yes. talking about yes, now. Yes, I am talking about that. And of course, you know, what's implicit in this is not that any collection of narrative resources in any culture is superior to any collection of narrative resources in any other culture, but rather that in a kind of way it's possible to construct a child who hasn't got the collection of narrative resources in any culture. For example, children who emigrate from one language literacy narrative culture to another at a certain key age may end up not knowing the literary products in the first language and never really learning them in the next language either. Or schools that are so concerned with, with the capacity to run computers and think effectively in a scientific way that they think of the, um, the theater arts program and the, and the novel interpreting parts of their program as something that's a frill, not fundamental to the education of children, 
can end up constructing a person, a new kind of a person who isn't a fully acculturated, equipped, acculturated thinker. Yeah, well, this is interesting because all this talk about competitiveness and so on, it always seems to focus on certain very limited yes. kinds of decoding and mathematical skills. And, yes. and then the hypothesis is erected that this is why Japan is such an economic yes. powerhouse and so on. Yes. And it never seems to occur to people that this might be a cultural, broadly speaking, a cultural problem. Yes, well, that's just exactly the sort of thing I'm thinking yeah, about. And one of the things that's interesting about Japan, I, I might add, is that that is such a homogeneous culture, and the cultural products, whatever they are, I'm not claiming any expertise about this, are so conventionally agreed about that there isn't likely to be a Japanese child who doesn't become acquainted with the important literary names in his culture or the important literary artifacts in his culture, no matter how much the schools may emphasize the mathematical side of life. We have a quite different problem in North America where we don't have the kind of saturated cultural texture of everyday life that one finds in a more homogeneous culture like Japan. Part of what makes us capable interpreters in Carol Feldman's view, is our knowledge of what she calls genre. The term is typically used in literature and the arts generally to signify a work's classification, novel, poem, play, or what have you. She uses it a little more broadly to describe the characteristic shape and dimensions of any cultural narrative. She thinks that we actively seek genres to which we can assign our experiences and then allow our interpretations to be guided by our knowledge of what a given genre demands. She offers as an example a study recently carried out by one of her graduate students, Bobby Renderer. The study followed several groups of actors who are all recent graduates of the same theater program. What's interesting about these three communities is that they begin with no genre of their own and they develop one. Of course, they're living in a life that's saturated with genres, not just the genres of culture in general, but they're reading plays all the time. So it's not as though there's no raw material around. But it is rather interesting that as their experiences in these groups develop, they construe them inside quite distinct patterns. So that one group tends to tell its story about how it met a great teacher learned everything, and then went on to try to perfect themselves in a way that sounds like a magic, a wonder tale. They became almost magically endowed with a kind of specialized knowledge. And after they're magically endowed, there is very little that should grow except the praxis of how to use the specialized knowledge. Of course, only one group told their story that way. Another group told its story as if they were a bunch of boys playing on the back lot, hanging around in a bar, playing darts, having a real good time, arguing, saying, these commercial theater things we're doing are uh, meaningless. Let's do some real good theater. It had this very light, playful, boyish style about it. And now all of them tell a story that starts with them beginning by accident, not by design, very different from the 
first story I mentioned, arguing all the time about what they should do next, as opposed to agreeing all the time, as the first group did. And so the genres of these two stories, which are very much agreed by the members of the groups, give the experiences that they shared an entirely different meaning inside the shape of that story they tell. And the fact that they share this story shape, this genre, gives the groups an identity because they share then something much more important than just that they had the same teacher, but that they gave the same meaning to the experience of having that teacher by putting that teacher inside this kind of story. What is the relationship then between the pre-existing genre and the story that the group tells about itself? Can they influence the genre as well as the genre influencing them? Well, I suppose they come into the experience uh, full of genres. For example, we have to imagine that all these young actors came out of NYU telling uh, sort of Horatio Alger stories about themselves, in part, that they start out as mere students, but one day they'll be great and important actors, and they will make it in a big way. And I suppose what must happen is that the experience of being a member of the group allows for the possibility of a more elaborated sense of self, a self as a member of a community, which community itself is a kind of organismic whole that has a kind of life of its own. But how, to what extent are, are things being shaped to preformed ideas of what this story ought to be? I see. I don't think they're being forced to conform to some obligatory or correct or right form that everybody thinks they should be in. I think, rather, there's something about compelling events that tends to suggest a certain genre shape that fits better. For example, the group that starts in the bar starts teacherless. The group that starts with this famous teacher actually begins with a series of tests from the teacher that have very mysterious questions in them. So the actual events of their history suggest, in a way, a certain genre shape that fits them, just as starting at a dartboard in a bar suggests a certain yeah. other kind of genre. So the genre is a way of organizing, way remembering, of, yeah. elaborating, celebrating. And it isn't that we are uh, rigidly living mythic I structures think, which determine our acts. I, I think that's right. I think, in fact, the genre frees one. That is, as these disparate events that are shared by a group come into a genre shape, the liberty to construe that the shape invites is freeing. It's very hard to go beyond the information given with a list, but once the list makes a shape and has a genre structure, there is a basis for interpretation, construal, and the assignment of, indi of individual idiosyncratic meanings, even. So that genres are liberating any kind of narrative patterning is, is an invitation to new knowledge. It's the absence of a pattern that freezes one into a rote recital. Carol Feldman's work on genre 
shows how meaning is generated at the intersection between biographical experience and the narrative resources to which our culture gives us access. Often, these resources will be drawn from the stock of stories that are available to us as plays, movies, novels, folk tales, and the like. But what are we actually doing when we sit at a play or immerse ourselves in a novel? Keith Oatley is well-placed to attempt an answer, being both a novelist and a cognitive psychologist at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. His novel, The Case of Emily V., was published to enthusiastic reviews in 1993. His academic work has focused on the psychology of emotions. In the closing section of tonight's program, he reflects on what goes on in our minds when we are told a story. The kind of thing that I think happens when you're watching a movie or reading a novel is that you read about actions and you take these actions into your own mind as if you were planning what to do next and you identify yourself with the protagonist and become, as it were, this person. And so as the plot proceeds or the action proceeds, if the events that you read about or, or watch meet vicissitudes and the ordinary events that are going to occur in the, in the play. It's not that you just watch someone else experiencing emotions. You yourself experience these emotions because you've taken, as it were, the action on to yourself and your own nervous system, your own mind, is running this, this process. As an example... Keith Oatley cites a scene from Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina. In the scene, Count Vronsky, who's something of a man about town, has gone to the Moscow train station to meet his mother. He's doing this, Tolstoy makes it clear, in a spirit that is dutiful but uninvolved. On the train from St. Petersburg is Anna. About her, Tolstoy lets us know that her marriage is stuffy and conventional and she's getting away for a while. As she disembarks from the train, he notices her. We know just enough to make sense of what follows. With all this background that, that Tolstoy is giving, as each action comes along, the piece of text that we're reading sets off pieces of thought, explanations for why this might be occurring. So we find ourselves explaining why Vronsky would want to take a second look at this person, and we already know something about that. So the the mode of thought, if you like, is that these hypotheses or, or ideas about the explanation for these things are being set off all the time. And I think one of the interesting ideas about literature here is that the same kind of process that sets off a thought, oh, here's an interesting person getting off the train, which is a kind of inference, is also going to set off emotions. So if you are indeed being Vronsky, then you experience a kind of excitement at this point, uh, or certainly as you are walking down the station and you find yourself falling into conversation. So that too is a kind of thought that is set off by the events in the story. Why we want to experience these vicarious emotions or why we enjoy puzzling out the motives of fictional characters, are questions that have exercised critics as long as there have been critics. Aristotle, 
in his Poetics, gave the classical explanation with reference to his favorite play, Sophocles' Oedipus Rex. The story, he said, was a mimesis, and the emotions it provoked allowed the audience a catharsis, his Greek word, which English has taken over directly. Keith Oatley thinks that this is still a pretty good explanation. If only we alter the conventional translations of the words mimesis and catharsis. Mimesis is usually rendered as imitation. Oatley suggests simulation, to get across the sense that reality is not being copied, but recreated within us. For catharsis, whose primary sense in English is of purgation, he proposes instead clarification. Clarification suggests that we resort to fictional situations not just because we enjoy experiencing emotions without having to suffer the consequences that would follow if we met the same situations in our lives, but also because fiction offers us a variety of practice exercises in interpretation. Because lots of things in human life are actually quite difficult to understand, including human relationships and our own emotions and how to confront this dilemma or that problem. This idea uh, of simulation allows us to experience what would happen if, and uh, rather than having to confront these kinds of things in real life, we can, uh, as it were, think about them in this vicarious kind of way. Now, I don't think probably very many people read for that reason, although literary critics probably would like them to be doing so. Um, but it certainly is something that lots of artists aspire to do. That's to say, create situations which allow people to enlarge their experience, reflect on it, and so on and so on. Fiction gives us access to a world of what-if in which we can experiment. But what kind of thinking are we doing when we simulate in our minds the action of a fictional story? For an answer to this question, Keith Oatley has turned to the 19th century American philosopher C.S. Peirce and the typology of modes of thought that Peirce put forward. And he really distinguishes three kinds of reasoning. One of them is called deduction, where you've got a theory and you try and think what a consequence of that theory would be. So an example would be if I've got a theory about how, say, the Earth and the Sun and the Moon all move, I could work out when sunrise will be on April the 1st or something like that. Now, of course, when you're trying to do science, you're really wanting to use theories that you've got, but the main problem is trying to work in the opposite direction, you see, uh, going from facts or observations to generalizations. It has rained every day this week, therefore it rains all the time and it'll rain tomorrow. Okay, so that would be an induction. People aren't very good at making accurate inductions, and that's part of why science is so difficult. Now, what Peirce pointed out is that ordinary, everyday thinking typically doesn't use either of those modes. The thing that human beings are really good at is this third mode that he called abduction, which is a kind of awkward term, in uh, Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories, Sherlock Holmes comes up with a slightly better term, which he calls reasoning backwards uh, from effects to causes. So really what you're doing here is that you see some event and then you try and 
think what the explanation is. Now, it turns out people are really quite good at that, and that's really what I was talking about when we were talking about what people are, are doing when they're reading. What's the difference between abduction and intuition? Well, according to Peirce, not much. Uh, so abduction, uh, another good term for it, is guessing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now, now, you see, Peirce had a very interesting argument about this. He said that uh, the human mind has been fashioned during evolution to guess much better than pure chance. And if, indeed, if it hadn't, then none of us would be around. In other words, he sees our ability to explain things and to think, OK, what, what can be happening here when we see some event as part of our success? So, indeed, it's exactly intuition. And, of course, there's this very funny anecdote of Peirce doing this in real life. Um, there was a, a time when he was going on a, on a, uh, a steamer from Boston to New York to attend a conference, and he left his watch and overcoat in the cabin and... He went back, he got off the boat and realised that he'd left them, and he went back and they were lost. And in an incredibly high-handed way, he got the captain to line up all the crew of the boat on the deck, and he went and talked to each one of them informally, and he said something like, just sort of chatting about whatever they'd be able to chat about, but with no particular purpose, precisely in order to form an intuition <laughs> about which of these guys had stolen his, uh, his watch and, and overcoat. And he said that he sort of talked to everyone and then took a little walk and he, you know, nothing came particular to, to mind. And then as he walked back towards them, he thought, yes, it must be that particular person. And indeed, he had this. He hired a detective and had this guy followed and got back his uh, his watch and chain. And Peirce is quite clear about this. He says, "You don't really know what this intuition is founded on," but his strong argument was that it's going to be better than chance. Now, of course, we we hear about this story because it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> there must also have been many other occasions in which it didn't. And so, this kind of of guessing obviously is not certain, but Percy's argument is that it's going to be better than chance. Keith Oatley thinks that the idea of abduction is helpful in a number of ways. It explains the kind of inferences we make in reading. It offers educators a realistic picture of how we actually think and what kinds of thinking people are naturally good at. And it may also allow us, he thinks, to improve on classical accounts of what's going on in science. Since Francis Bacon, who laid down what uh, supposedly were to be the rules of natural science, induction has, for philosophers and scientists, come to seem as being very important. So, in other words, what you're supposed to do is to gather, in a careful way, fact after fact after fact, and when you've got enough of them, then you can make a generalisation or law, an inductive generalisation, and you can know what the next fact is going to look like. Now, so far as I understand it, not very many scientists really work like that. Um, I mean, I've just been recently reading about uh, the life of Darwin, and he even, I mean, he's very interesting, he, he even lets you know that he thinks that he ought to be doing induction. 
So indeed, he goes he goes and looks at at all of these different things when he's on his voyage on the on the Beagle and uh, and he collects lots and lots of observations, and he writes as if what he is supposed to be doing is gathering all these observations and then coming up with some generalization. Whereas in his letters to all his friends uh, and in his own notebooks, he makes it perfectly clear that what he's really doing is abduction. He's forming hypotheses and they are the things that are going to direct his observations and that any observation is going to be for or against some theory and, and so on. So even with Darwin, who, who you would think would be a case of someone who was doing something like collecting lots of examples in order to come up with a generalisation. He's not at all doing that. He's really coming up with hypotheses and then finding facts to test them uh, one way or the other. Abduction, in this view, guides induction. Without abduction to establish what counts as a fact in the first place, induction would be quite impossible. And even in this more restricted role, Induction remains a difficult and laboriously acquired skill. Psychological research shows most of us to be quite bad at it. It's for this reason, Keith Oatley says, that scientific modes of thought have to be institutionalized in order to be sustained. It's not an accident that it takes uh, very clever people a tremendous amount of effort just to make a small step in science and that science really is best thought of as something that a whole culture does over hundreds or thousands of, of years. And if you want to think in a scientific way, then you actually have to take on, as it were, that big chunk of culturally generated thinking process in order to be able to do it. So as, uh, as Newton said, um, uh, you know, if I've seen further than others, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. So, if you like, science isn't natural to human thinking in the same way that I think understanding stories is. Science is a cultural activity, and we only think well scientifically if we've had this extensive education and taken on these extra cultural processes like mathematics and you know, logico-deductive method and so on. Keith Oatley's conclusion then is that abduction forms the foundation of our thinking and accounts for our finely tuned sensitivity to narrative. Other modes of thought are more difficult and therefore require more cultural support. This applies not just to science in his view but to institutions like law as well. I think thinking is a difficult thing for people to do. I think there are some easy things like abduction, and then most everything else is much more difficult. And so what's actually happened in Western culture and in different ways in other cultures as well is that society has created ways of thinking productively or towards truths. And one of the interesting ways in which this happens is that individuals don't have to do it all on their own. So the best example, I think, that we have in our kind of society is thinking towards a just decision in a legal court. So, I mean, it used to be the case that a single person could uh, have a witch hunt after somebody who they thought was a bad person and then... Uh, 
the culprit would be apprehended and punished and so on. Now, we don't any longer believe that justice can be uh, approached in that way. We now think that there needs to be a prosecutor and a defender, and they have quite different roles, and yet a third person or a group of people would be, decide what is to be done about it. So now thought, you see, uh, coming to a conclusion about what should be done about this crime is distributed among at least three different roles. And science is like that too, because it's hard for people to see what's wrong with the intuitions, or the ideas, the explanations that they are interested in. What happens is one person will publish their idea, someone else will say what's wrong with it or propose an alternative idea, and yet a third person, let's say somebody who, who writes a textbook, will actually decide what's going to be influential. And so really thought that moves towards understanding truth depends on a whole set of cultural inventions that not just the individual can take on, like mathematics, but that a whole group of people, a whole society can take on. And they're based on natural modes that we all have, but they're adding something very important to those as well. On Ideas Tonight, you've heard the second part of our four-part series on modes of thought by David Cayley. Production assistants for tonight's program, Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. Technical direction, Lorne Tulk. The producer was Alison Moss. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Thank you.